All right. Uh, maybe we could begin with uh, by you sharing some of your background in theater and education. In theater and education, um, I mean, I work. Uh, I'm a theater director and producer, and then I also work as a teaching artist in New York City. Teaching artist is different than, let's say, the school theater teacher because the school theater teacher is hired by the school to teach full time and will probably like in an elementary school would probably see K through five at some point during the week all the classes whereas a teaching artist is a visitor in the school who is not an employee of the school who works for let's say an arts institution a theater company um a museum, an orchestra, a dance company, and they usually are hired because the school doesn't have a budget for a full-time arts teacher in that discipline. So the teaching artist will come in, let's say, for 10 visits over the course of two months and do a specific residency targeted at a specific grade. Hmm. Uh, when I first started doing the work, it was more geared towards how can the art support some content curriculum that the students are currently doing. So let's say that the second graders are going to be doing a unit on poetry at some point during the year. We time it out so that I would go and do the visits while they were doing their poetry unit with their classroom teacher so that we could create some kind of uh, whole class theatrical expression of a poem and then present it on the last day. Hmm. So would you characterize yourself as an artist first who teaches some classes, or do you also consider yourself fully a, a teacher equally, or how do you think of these things? Well, I had a, a sort of an odd career path in that I had always, when I went to, when I did my undergraduate work, what I really wanted to do was to be a performer in musical theater. And so after I graduated college, I did uh, two musicals that toured around the United States and Canada and Mexico. Um, and then I was back in the city. Uh, I did a couple of regional productions. And I had planned to just keep pursuing work as an actor. Um, when I was in acting, the job that I did to bring in money was working for catering companies. And uh, that's a good way to make some fast money, although the problem is it's very physically taxing. It's a lot of standing around. It's a lot of moving around heavy things. It, sometimes it can go very late into the night, which makes it hard to get up in the morning to get online to go to auditions. Um, and people had said to me, have you ever thought about working with kids? And I said, no, 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 I don't like, I'm not interested in working with kids, mostly because my experience up to that point was in babysitting. Mm -hmm. And then, um, 9-11 happened and when 9-11 happened all of the industries that relied on wall street shut down and catering was one of them so there was suddenly no work for anybody who did anything related to wall street in new york city and i thought you know maybe i should find something else to do and at the time an organization called the actors fund 
was doing trainings in what they called parallel careers. So it was trainings for actors who wanted to get some kind of work that would require training without having to go back to graduate school. And they were offering a course in what is called arts in education. And I took the course, and then because it was still close to the time of 9-11, FEMA had given money to New York City to make up for test prep days that were missed, so kids were going to school on Saturdays. The thing was that kindergarten, first and second grade, they don't test. So they were getting this funding, and uh, kindergarten, first and second grade were going to school on Saturday, but they needed programming. So a bunch of us who had just completed this teaching artist training with the Actors Fund, we got some work actually working with kids. And it ended up being a lot of fun. And then maybe two years into it, because I was sometimes catering and sometimes doing arts education and still going to audition. The problem with teaching and trying to be a working artist or working actor is that if you get offered an acting job and you had accepted a 10-week residency, you would either have to turn down the acting job or you would have to quit the residency in the middle of it, which would be a disaster, um, especially considering some of the schools that we go into, these kids' lives are already really chaotic outside of the building. Hmm. Um, the schools is the schools is really the, the constant in their life. That's where there's some sense of order. They leave the building and it's complete disorder. So I would, if you did that, you would be contributing to some of the problems that actually make it difficult for them to learn. So you know, their teacher's going to have to explain, oh, Mr. Kevin's not coming anymore because he got an acting job. That's not going to mean anything to those kids. Mm. Um, so one day, I, one day I walked into a classroom. I was visiting, I think there were fourth graders out in Far Rockaway. And I opened the door. It wasn't my first visit. It was probably my, my third or fourth time there. I opened the door and the whole room, all the kids went, ah, he's here. And I thought, wait a minute, <laughs> this never ever happens when you go to an audition. Whenever you go to an audition, nobody in that room is excited to see another actor. But you just walked into a classroom. The kids are excited you're here. You're excited you're here. The teacher's excited you're here. Maybe you should do this. Maybe this is what you should do. So that was the point where I decided to stop pursuing work as an actor because also being a teaching artist is very hard. It's really hard to figure out how you're going to create a lesson plan that engages children in performing. Getting up in front of your classmates is really hard to do. So you have to figure out a lesson plan that's going to give them a sense of, oh, I can do this. Oh, I can be successful. Oh, I'm going to do a good job in front of my classmates, in front of my teacher. Um, that takes a lot of work. And I was really excited about it. And so then I started working um, with other organizations that offered teaching artist residencies. There was suddenly um, a lot of work because uh, No Child Left Behind had funding in it for something called character education. Character education was concepts like citizenship, trust, responsibility, respect, caring. Um, there were there were seven of them. I can't recall them all right now. But those were great things that we could use drama to explore. Hmm. And so then suddenly there was you know opportunities to have residencies. And at the time, 
this was in the early 2000s, teaching artists were sent out in pairs. We always went together. Nobody um, at that time was, was teaching by themselves. So there would be two sort of actors in the classroom with the classroom teacher and the kids um, doing these workshops. And then over time, um, I got work not just doing things in the classroom, but I would get hired to do after-school programs. And those programs, they would actually sometimes be a show. Um, and then I got more work directing shows with young people. And then uh, people started saying to me, well, what are you going to do? Like, are Because you, you know, teaching artists work part-time hourly. And so what you have to do is kind of put together a patchwork of gigs to sort of fill up the week. So, you know, on Monday, you're at a school in Brooklyn, and on Tuesday, you're at a school in the Bronx, and then on Wednesday, you're at a school in Queens, and then Wednesday afternoon, you're doing after school in Manhattan, and then Thursday, you're at the school for Monday. Um, so it's a lot of hustling, but I really enjoyed it. Um, but I didn't know what the future was. There was really only two tracks. There was either be mm. a teaching artist and go into the classroom, or there was work on the administrative end where you would basically be hiring and training teaching artists and booking them. That didn't seem to be all that fun to me. Right. And people kept saying, well, are you going to go to graduate school? You're going to get your master's degree. And I thought, well, master's degree in what? What would I get my master's degree in? And then in 2008, a new master's degree opened up in New York City. And I thought, oh, I should do that. Um, I will tell you, the very, I, you know, getting accepted into a master's degree program is difficult. I applied for this master's degree program because I wanted to get a full-time job. I thought, because I, by that time I had had six years of experience teaching, I thought this is a good amount of, of teaching experience, then I'll have my master's degree, then I probably could apply to teach at the college level, which would be a full-time job. Um, I didn't, I had never been to, I hadn't been to, I graduated undergraduate in uh, 1995 and this is 2008. So I had been away from academia for a long time. I didn't really know what to expect. Mm -hmm. I had no idea the difference between education and indoctrination. <laughs> and I think most graduate students don't know the difference either because they've never been to graduate school. This was a new program and we were told on the very first day by one of the professors, we're so excited about this new program. You know, a lot of professors at this university, they didn't want us to do this program. They said we were a cult. And I thought, how could they be a cult? I don't understand, what, would, what could this possibly be? This is a program about theater and using theater with different populations. So using theater with uh, children and teenagers in education, using theater with some identified community group because they want to explore something. Well, the reason why it's a cult is because the foundational texts of that program are Paolo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed and Augusto Boel's book, Theater of the Oppressed. And nothing was presented during that entire degree that contradicted either one of those texts. I don't know if you know about these texts, but well, for the, the yeah, go ahead. Sorry, what? Uh, for the, the listeners, could you just sort of like give us the um, the elevator summary? Well, yeah, pedagogy of the oppressed essentially assumes 
that all of society can be looked at as a battle between two groups, the oppressors and the oppressed. Um, it was uh, developed by Paolo Freire, who developed his work largely with adult language learners. And what he's aiming to do is use education to raise awareness of the students because the students don't know, according to Freire, the students don't know that they're being oppressed. So it's your job as a teacher to raise their conscience so that they understand how they are being oppressed so that you can put them on a path towards a revolution, which is going to be bloody. Um, ironically, there's a lot in, in the book about dialogue, like oppressed, you know, um, the oppressed having dialogue with the oppressor, um, which is, you know, fascinating since what's been happening the last couple of years is anything but opportunities to have dialogue. If you dare to contradict the narrative of critical social justice activists, they will shut you down by calling you horrible names. They do not want dialogue. Mm. But ultimately, this is a belief system, believing that all of society can be looked at as a, a battle between oppressor and oppressed groups. That's a belief that is not an objective truth. And I have no idea why. I, I didn't know until after I, after I had finished the degree. I thought, well, maybe there is some reason that they'd be using this text because this is the arts. But it turns out pedagogy of the press is, is taught in education schools. That Education schools are the master's degree program that full-time teachers have to go through. Now, I would think that you'd spend the majority of your time, if you want to be a classroom teacher, learning about what are the most effective strategies to, to, to teach students how to read and how to do mathematical problems, not to focus your career on how you're going to walk into that room, look at all the kids, and you as the teacher decide, okay, these boys and girls over here, these are oppressors, and I know that because of the color of their skin. These boys and girls over here, these are the oppressed, and I know that because of the color of their skin. So I'm going to treat them all different ways, and I'm going to use this idea of equity to make sure that the oppressed kids get things, that we take things away from the oppressors, and we give them to the oppressed, because that's the philosophy of equity. So, okay. This is not what teachers should be doing. Did you... I don't, in my opinion. Yeah. Did you go through some kind of uh, drills or exercises where they actually said, okay, this is what a classroom looks like and this is what you would do. Like, you should take things from the oppressors. Like, what? I don't know what that looks like, actually. Well, you know, at the time, I mean, I completed this degree in 2011. And so that was really before equity... We did sometimes see that, that same cartoon. I don't know if you've ever seen the equity cartoon with the, the people who are all looking over the fence and they're of different heights. Yeah. So picture number one, you have people of different heights and they're all looking, I think, at a baseball game on the other side of the fence and only the tall person can see it. So then the next cartoon is it's called equity and then some of them get these um, blocks to stand on so that everybody can see over the fence. Right. Um, it wasn't necessary. It was more like you just took it on faith 
that we all know because we're all in this graduate program. We all accept that the world is nothing but a battle between oppressor and oppressed groups. And it is our job to use these theater programs to raise the consciousness of either the students we're working with or the community members that we're working with or the group members in our program to raise their consciousness to fight against something. The final project that we had to do for that graduate program is we had to, and so again, this is this is the idea of you're, you're, you're coming up with a conclusion and then working backwards. So the culmination of this uh, master's degree program was identify a community that has some issue that you could use theater to help community members address. So my culminating project was what we called an intergenerational, meaning two generations of groups. What we did is we worked with people who identified as um, gay and lesbian, and some of them were age 60 and up, and some of them were between the age 18 and 27. And we were going to use, um, we used theater activities to work with these groups both separately and together to create a theater piece inspired by generational differences. We were curious about why is it that these two groups of people don't interact that much? What are the needs and wants of these two groups? What are some of the agreements that these two groups have? What are some of the disagreements these two groups could have? And because this was still, I think we did it in early 2011, at the time you could still have open conversations about disagreements. So one of the disagreements that was often had is the older group members really did not like the word queer. And there were younger group members who were using queer as a, as a word to describe themselves. And they were able to, during the rehearsals that we did, they were able to talk about why we like this word and why we use this word. And the other group saying, well, actually, to us, that word was always a pejorative. That was the last word we heard before we got punched in the face. We don't want to be called that word. Um, you couldn't do that now. Couldn't, could not have that conversation now. Um, and interestingly, uh, we created a show and then we presented it at the, um, the Gay and Lesbian Center on 13th Street in Manhattan. And interestingly, the very last, uh, the, the theme of the show was a carnival. So it was, different scenes that were appearing in this carnival that were sort of about different issues that this group had brought up. But the last scene was about, essentially the theme of it was don't label me. Don't assume that you know things about me just because of my age. And um, two characters came out and, do you ever go to a carnival and you stick your face, you, you stick your head in that thing and there's a, a cartoon drawn on it, like, you know, like a person lifting a heavy weight or something, and then you mm -hmm. stick your head in there. Yeah, right. So we, cre we created two of those, and we put all the stereotypes that they thought of that people would assume about uh, a younger person who happened to be queer, and then we put all the stereotypes of, of an a older person who happened to be gay, and then they came out stuck in those things, and they were like, wait, what? what's going on? Like, these things don't, like, I, like, this doesn't describe who I am. So it's just fascinating how much things have changed 
because I don't think we can have that conversation now. Why not? What do you think? Uh, how would the conversation go or not go? Well, typically, if you start to post any criticism about the word queer, you'll get histrionic responses like, you're erasing my existence, or you're a dinosaur, you just don't understand, or, you know, how dare you? How dare you do that to me? You are oppressing me. Um, that completely shuts down any ability to have a conversation. And also kind of an insistence of you're not listening to me, you're not hearing me. Like, no, I am hearing you. You're, you can refer to yourself any way you choose. That's totally fine. But you may not project an identity onto somebody else. That's not okay. Hmm. It's interesting that you say that the last thing was this idea about you can't possibly know about somebody based on these external features because this goes right back to what you were saying about walking into a classroom and saying, okay, kids, uh, based on your external features, I know that you're an oppressor and I know that you guys are the oppressed and just separating. So it's it's almost prescribed that you treat your students that way when in, in, this, uh, in this play that you had done, it, the, the whole idea seemed to be looking past that and realizing the, the mistake of that yes yes but this is this is not the way things are right now um any any time i hear the word community now i know i'm about to be manipulated because anytime the word community is invoked it's to score political points by saying and and, and it's often done in a um standpoint epistemology way so somebody will say like as a gay man or the lgbtqia plus community and then they'll start saying things that they think the community all thinks that they all want and this is never ever true these communities are even if they are communities and i think there's a, a a part of the conversation that's left out about is this actually a community or not. But let's assume that this is a community. That community is not a monolith. I mean, particularly even if you were just to look at the acronym LGBTQIA+, I mean, that in and of itself is a bunch of people who have very, very different life experiences, very different needs, very different wants. even if you just looked at just one letter, if you looked at gay men, they are of all different ages, of all different races, of all different political backgrounds, of all different ethnicities. They don't all view the world the same way. That's absurd. But it's usually done in the, it's usually done because somebody's trying to claim that this is an oppressed group. And I am either standing up for this oppressed group as a quote-unquote ally, or I am a member of this group and I have special knowledge that, that you don't have and you can't say anything, so I'm going to shut down the conversation so that you can't even participate in it. Mm. And these days that scares people off a lot. And that's actually, that's the technique... Um, that's the technique that Kiki Ojo Thompson used on Richard Bilkstone. Can you explain the background of that story? Uh, Well, Richard Bilkstow was a Canadian educator um, who had worked his entire career 
in education. Um, he had retired, and um, he was he was so well liked in that field that he was asked to come back and work after retirement. And so he was sent to, um, I believe it was in 2021. He was sent to an online diversity, equity, and inclusion training uh, that was taking place, uh, I believe it was in the Toronto School Board District. Mm. And so the workshop was supposed to be, it was, it was provided by a consulting firm called the Kojo Institute. And um, I think the owner of the Kojo Institute, her name is Kiki Ojo Thompson. And she was leading this workshop and on the second day of the workshop, uh, she was trying to make, uh, from her perspective, she felt that Canada is a much more racist country than the United States. And so Richard spoke up and he said, well, actually, I'm not so sure that Canada is more racist than the United States. Um, I actually, for part of my career, I worked in Buffalo. I know how the American K-12 system works, and I'll just give you one example. One example is in the United States, students are funded differently depending on which taxpayer district they happen to be in. If you're in a district that collects low tax dollars, you're not getting as much funding as kids who are in districts where there's a lot more money. That's different in Canada. In Canada, all of our students are funded equally, so in that way, And she wasn't having any of it. And so what she did is she used standpoint epistemology to shut down the conversation. She said something like, are you in your whiteness telling me how it is for black people? Hmm. Um, So he provided some good evidence. And it would have been interesting to continue that conversation. Right. But right now, there are some people who they are a very small but very loud majority, minority, and they are able to shut down conversations. And then what happened is all the other people who were on that call did not speak up. They all got very afraid. And then I guess after that Zoom call, there was you know some back and forth, and then there was another meeting after that. And then at that meeting, what Kiki Ojo Thompson did is she used Richard as an example of what she called resistance. And so then what she did is she had all the participants come up and describe what that resistance looked like. So she publicly shamed him. Mm. And all, a bunch of Richard's colleagues participated in that shaming. Um, and then r- after that, uh, apparently he went on sick leave. Um, I know that he filed a complaint with some organization in Canada that did find that he was discriminated against and he was um, awarded some kind of um, financial damages to compensate him for the lost work. Um, He was also, he had recently filed a uh, lawsuit, I believe against Toronto School Board District for discrimination and it was going to come out in the newspaper in Canada and uh, he was very concerned I, uh, according to the reporting he was concerned of the impact that might have on his family 
And so um, this past summer, he took his own life. Yeah. Yeah. I... Another another thing uh, in that story that struck me was when I listened to the audio clips of that story um, that were included in the the piece by uh, Rupa Subramanya of the Free Press. She included these leaked audio clips in which I heard Kike Ojo Thompson using undeniably genocidal language, uh, calling him, referencing him as a weed, talking about getting out the weed whacker, uh, just... Just and then getting all of his colleagues to to publicly shame him like that that must have been such a brutal experience for him obviously it was I mean it was devastating for him I mean I imagine you know this is a man who dedicated his entire life to education and you know the thing that also struck me as particularly painful is Richard and I are both middle aged we're both gay we both have long careers in education but there is something about being middle-aged and gay and never having had your own children. You have to make choices about what you're going to spend your life on. Hmm. So, you know, as a parent, I'm sure you know, when you have kids, that takes up a lot of time in your life. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have kids, there's a reason why we see a lot of gay theater directors and a lot of gay teachers, because you need to spend your life on something. And when you commit your life to something like education or like the arts, and then you have a very small but very loud group of activists come in and decide, because of your identity, we don't want you here. Because of your identity, we don't want to listen to a thing that you have to say. And then on top of that, what we're going to do is we're going to shame you until you follow the Robin DiAngelo rules and you admit that you have a kind of original sin that you can never get rid of and we're going to constantly remind you of that because you look like somebody who in the very, very distant past did something very bad that we don't like. And we're going to keep hammering on that. And we're never going to let it go. So I can imagine, you know, in addition to being very concerned about how this lawsuit was going to impact his family, that he was probably devastated that his entire career was taken away from him in a very short amount of time for an absurd reason. Hmm. I don't believe these critical social justice activists really care about what they are saying. I think they're just throwing a temper tantrum. I think they're wallowing in a dirty diaper of identity grievance politics and throwing their poop at anybody that they don't like because they can get attention. Hmm. And I did hear somebody, you know, I heard somebody afterwards who was talking about how can we have some compassion for these people because in one sense they think in their mind they're doing the right thing so in one sense kiki ojo thompson thinks she's doing the right thing yeah right and it made me think about a quote that um i believe i heard it from eric weinstein and what eric weinstein says particularly in relation to this standpoint of epistemology stuff he said look If I can't tell you, I think you're wrong, then we are not equals. Mm -hmm. I've heard that. So if I can't tell you, I think you're wrong about Canada being more racist than the United States because of my identity, then either I'm exercising the soft bigotry of low expectations. That's not good. 
or I'm very, very, very afraid of you. That's not good either. That's not good in the arts and that's not good in education because in the arts, we have to be collaborators. We can't collaborate on an artistic project unless we trust each other. We can't build a school that kids are gonna come into and have a happy, joyous, and very hardworking environment if we can't trust each other. But also, if I can't tell you I think you're wrong, then we are not equals. What about all the, now, Kiki Ojo Thompson was never gonna listen to what Richard Bilkstow had to say because Richard Bilkstow was to her a student in her class. So in that sense, I can understand why she couldn't hear what he had to say. But what about all of the people around her who knew what she was doing was wrong and they said nothing? What about all of his colleagues who were on those phone calls who knew what was going on was wrong and they said nothing? The cowards are the people that I'm having a hard time finding any compassion for because they know this is wrong and they are not treating their colleagues as equals. What would you have them do? Uh, speak up in class and say, hey, Thompson, you need to stop it right now? Or, or what does it look like? Well, there has to be somebody in her, in her orbit that she would listen to that could sit down with her over a cup of coffee and say, I understand your heart's in the right place. I understand that there are a lot of people on the planet Earth who are in a lot of pain and that we want to make some change. The manner in which you're going about doing this is actually causing other people pain that they don't deserve. And here we have a man who's dedicated his whole life to education. We want this guy. There aren't a lot of people on the planet Earth who have dedicated their whole life to teaching children. Hmm. We want those people. We need to keep those people. If we start demonizing those people because of the body that they woke up in this morning. Who are we going to have left? We have to treat them like equals. And also, here's a hard truth. If you have a position, you have to be able to defend it. You cannot take this fundamentalist view and say, these are my beliefs and I know it's true because of my identity. End of conversation. That didn't work in the gay rights movement. Hmm. Those guys who, and women who fought for gay marriage, they didn't say, let us get married and we know we should get married because we're gay. Give it to us right now. They had to explain we're in loving, committed relationships. They had to explain, you know what? If one of us gets sick, the hospital can deny the other one access to our loved one while they're dying because we're not married. But you don't insist and demand and you don't humiliate people publicly. And the other shame about not treating Kiki Ojo Thompson as an equal is I don't care what she says on social media. One day she is going to understand that she played a role in that man's death. And that's going to be a terrible day for her. 
And that was done to her by the cowards who said nothing. Yeah. So in that way, she is a kind of victim. Interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Huh. So, you know, just getting back to oppressor oppressed, if this is your worldview and all you want to do is keep fighting oppression based on identity grievance, this is what's going to happen. We have to adopt a live and let live attitude if we are going to be a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multi-multi-multi-multi-multi-country. You have to have a live and let live attitude. You cannot force other people to agree with you because they're not going to. Yeah, that doesn't seem to be the direction that we're headed right now. Well, I don't know about that because I think, I mean, the problem is that I, I do think there is a silent majority. I was just recently at a, um, an event and there was some talk about um, some of the media outlets are beginning to publish things that sort of go against the ultra-left narrative. Um, it was just actually in the paper uh, very recently that um, they are admitting that the way that they have been teaching kids to read doesn't work, that phonics is the thing. And they knew phonics was the thing all along, but they went along with this other ideology and teaching where kids were guessing the words and getting it wrong. So I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I have no doubt that the people who are really committed to this ideology are going to keep saying it. But I think largely people are getting really sick and tired of it. Um, and we also just saw that the publication of that article in Tablet Magazine, um, whether you agree or disagree with what's in the article in Tablet Magazine, the fact that that article was even published at all tells you a lot about how sick people are of uh, this stuff the uh, toxic gentleness also, of the toxic gentleness of the american theater uh, by clayton fox yeah the toxic gentleness of the american theater is talking about how um putting this critical social justice activism on stage in every play is driving away audiences um yeah so people are speaking with their wallets they're doing it in Hollywood, too. I mean, uh, I can tell you myself, I mean, I, I like to watch a lot of different movies and horror and whatever, action, drama. But, I, but I, I'm a fan also of um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Star Wars and Star Trek. I like those that stuff. And uh, that, to me, is one of the areas that has been hit the hardest with this stuff. Maybe just because it has the biggest audience, but... The um, the sort of social justice or wokeification of Marvel has has really upset what was it, it's infuriated and depressed what was just like guaranteed money. I mean, a, a solid guaranteed fan base that frankly would have just kept watching whatever movies they were given just would have kept going as long as you give me another Marvel movie, I'll be in the seat. Until they somehow managed to to convince diehard Marvel fans that Marvel wasn't that interesting anymore, it's amazing, and they they've somewhat done that with Star Wars, and they've somewhat done that with Star Trek, some of the Star Trek products, where it's just they're just 
not only lecturing people in a very condescending way, but what I see, and, and I don't, I'm not as familiar with it happening in theater or, or if it's happening in theater, maybe you can tell me, but also taking, um, taking cherished heroes or storylines and just tearing them apart and almost mocking them, making heroes look like buffoons, uh, in almost spitting on, on these, these heroes. People grew up with these, these characters and they do look up to them and they do sort of see them as heroes, even though they're not real, but they do. And then they're putting out these movies where they're essentially just spitting in the fans' faces. It's, it's kind of shocking to see this. Yeah, it's terrible what they did to Star Wars. It's really ter- I mean, I grew I grew up on the Star Wars movies. We lived for those movies. So to see them presented in the way that they were presented was a massive disappointment. To see the actors who I was really excited to see on screen again be given characters that were so unlike i mean luke skywalker was just so unlike oh my god that character they just Um, you know they just deconstructed him for the sake of i mean typically there's supposed to be some grand uh aim in a deconstruction project i thought and it just seemed like out of sheer spite because because what he's a white male or something and they just broke they broke the character down and replaced him of course with a female who's a million times more powerful without any of the real training <laughs> it's just well it was an interesting idea i mean it was definitely an interesting idea to cast a woman as the as the main role because we hadn't seen that in star wars before and i would have been totally on board with it definitely the problem is she she's not a three-dimensional character she's just there because she's a woman yeah so the thing that makes characters interesting is that characters look at Tony Soprano. What's interesting about him is that he is a flawed character. And sometimes it is his flaws that actually help him solve problems. So God forbid, because we are in this era where identity just can't be criticized in any way, if Ray happened to have a flaw, that would have been interesting. But they will not show that in any way. So it made her a very two-dimensional character, as were the other two characters that were introduced alongside her. They were both very two-dimensional. What's interesting about you know Star Wars is that Han Solo and Princess Leia were in love with each other. He's selfish and self-centered <laughs> and she's very prideful that caused some problems and that was fun and funny to watch and then very satisfying when they actually got together mm. but they won't make characters that are complicated now all the characters have to be very two-dimensional and they have to represent as i said before quote-unquote communities because the community needs to be quote-unquote represented mm. another idea like Children aren't reading because they're not seeing themselves represented in the literature. Listen, I'm for, all for adding any kind of diversity to literature. That's fantastic. The reason why they're not reading is because they were not taught phonics. They don't know how to sound out words. That's why they're not reading. Not because they're not being represented. It's good to have them be represented, but that's not the main reason why they're not reading. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is this sort of vaguely reminds me of the decision recently where the um, math and science exploratory school in New York removed the math and science from the name because they thought that it was discouraging to girls to want to come, which is, first of all, not the reason that they didn't have more female students. And second of all, sexist to suggest that girls are not interested in STEM. I mean, of course they are. It's just it's just an absurd, absurd thing. And and they adopted a, the, the diversity program as well. And uh, math scores, standardized math testing has plummeted as a result. I also, you know, I wouldn't have any problem with this. And I wouldn't have any problem with it in theater either. If we were going by the idea that anybody can put whatever they can get on stage on stage. If you can get it on the stage, you can put it there. You have every right to. But the problem is that only certain things are allowed on stage. So we, we had a festival here in New York that had accepted a show into the festival. The person who was performing and created the show made the mistake of saying there are only two sexes, men and women, and his show was completely canceled. From a festival that prided itself on being quote unquote uncensored. Oh, I, okay. I, I read about this. Yes. Uh, the whole the whole thing with the show was that it was uncensored and like anything goes. Wasn't that like the whole? The festi- yeah, I believe it was called the Frigid Festival. And the idea is that it's uncensored. Uncensored. Uh-huh. They're going to put whatever it gets accepted in the festival. They're going to let it go on the stage. Right. But the one thing you can't say is that there are two genders. And, um, he might have said there are two sexes. Okay, okay. And then the whole show is shut down, and, and they're not going to have any more in the future. Is that correct? Um, I think the festival is going to go on. It's just not going to claim that it's uncensored anymore. Oh, oh. so now it's the censored festival. <laughs> but that should not... I mean, particularly... The, the great thing about theater is that theater doesn't have a rating system. So theater isn't rated R, rated PG, rated G... So if you can get it on the stage, you know, the idea should be, can we put up as many different ideas as possible so that we could compare and contrast these ideas so that we could see what an audience actually goes to and actually likes. Another thing that has happened in, in, in the theater, particularly in New York, is we've had shows where audience members were brought up on stage based on race. We've had shows where audiences had to were told they had to leave the theater before the end of the show because the end of the show was, quote, not for them. It was for a different population, and they are not allowed to see the end of the show because it's not for them. How is that collaborative? How is that getting anybody interested and excited in your message? Yeah. Uh, particularly in the not-for-profit world, a big problem is that um, if you want to get grant funding to support a project, you've got to declare allegiance to a whole set of ideas as part of your grant application process. So if the panel doesn't, when they review all these grant applications, if they don't see in your application that you're pledging allegiance to ideas that you may or may not believe in, they're not going to fund your projects. So there's a whole host of projects that we're never going to get to see because 
a thing that gets criticized all over the place, which is they say, oh, gatekeeping, gatekeeping. That's what's keeping us out. Well, now who's the gatekeeper? Mm. Exactly, yeah. Although I've been, you know, pretty lucky. I didn't quite finish the trajectory of my career in that after I became, after I became a teaching artist and after I got this degree and I, I ended up directing more advanced projects. I ended up directing, um, uh, productions of, of Shakespeare and contemporary drama and musicals, uh, with teenagers who really wanted to do it. And I thought, wait a minute, actually, I am, I didn't know this the whole time. But because I had a background in theater and because I had a background in teaching, working with people, getting people on board and finishing a project, actually what I want to do is direct theater. So I went and got my, I got a second master's degree um, in theater directing. And um, I didn't know how I was going to make a career as a theater director, especially because by that time I was in my mid to late forties. That's very old. Um, A lot of, you know, Theater is very much like a trade. Like people start out very young and the ones that stick with it kind of work their way up the ladder. It's hard to sort of break in in a new way in the middle of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, but after I graduated, I was told network, 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 go around, network, meet people, network, meet people. That's how people get jobs. And I tried that for about a year. And, you know, by that time, um, it was 2018, 2019. And so these um, critical social justice politics were very much alive. And I could see people looking at me like, oh no, <laughs> like we, we, can't, we, can't hire any, we, we can hire anybody but this guy. He's all the things that we don't want to hire. He's all the identities we don't want what to are hire. The, what are the identities that they don't well, want? I mean, the identities that they definitely would not want to hire to direct a show because it's, it's the person being in charge is what they would call, I don't like these words, but this is what they would call this person. They would call this person cisgender, white, heterosexual. Um, I was every one of those except that I was gay. So, um, and gay but not queer, um, which is also a problem. Um, But even still, I kept trying. I kept trying to network and I kept trying to network. And then I finally went to an event that was for directors who wanted to break in to, to, to directing somehow. And it was three artistic directors who were talking about their work and talking about their theaters. And, you know, we listened to the presentation and I went to the event to network. I went to the event to go say hi to these artistic directors. Hi, my name is Kevin. I'm a theater director. Would love to talk to you about, you know, um, any opportunities that might be happening. The very last artistic director at the very end of the program got up and this artistic director said, I don't hire any directors to work at my theater whose work I haven't seen. And I don't hire any directors to work at my theater who hasn't seen work at my theater. And I went, okay, that's the opposite of networking. There's no point in networking with this person. (laughs) (laughs) because I don't have a show right now that this person could come and see. And even if I were to have a show, what's the chances that this person is actually going to come to it? I went, oh no, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? 
And so because I had a background working with teenagers creating original shows, I thought, you know what? Use the skills that you have and try to create your own show. Call up the people you went to graduate school. Ask them if they'll work on a grant application with you. Um, it's, it is, it's very difficult to get people involved in a project if they don't know what it is. So I thought, well, you know what we could do? Um, I can take stories that are in the public domain and I could use those as the basis for the creation of a theater project. And then I thought, well, what stories do I like? Um, I'm really interested in Gothic literature. Um, it turned out that Edith Horton, who's the author of The Age of Innocence, um, she wrote a ton of short stories, and I think like 13 or 14 of them are ghost stories. And I thought, oh, this is really great. We could take four of these, put them together in a show. Mm. And so I called up some people that I went to graduate school with. We worked on some applications. We submitted them. Uh, we submitted it right before the pandemic hit. The pandemic hit disaster. Um, actually, even during the pandemic, I went to an online Zoom meeting that was for directors. And the person who was the head of this organization, only she and her assistant were on the Zoom call. Everybody else was was listening in, but not you couldn't see them. And then at one point, because when the pandemic first hit, nobody knew what was going to happen. And so they were talking about, you know, you know, what's going on with COVID? How is this affecting theaters? How is this affecting work for directors? And then they had a Q&A where people could submit questions and the assistant would filter the questions and then ask them to the person who was the head of this organization. And I think it was the first question that came through. And the first question was, um, after the pandemic is over, how are we going to make it so that white men can't direct anything anymore? What? And the head of this organization she blanked for a second and then she said i don't know what that question means what's the next question and my jaw hit the floor because i knew what that question meant that question meant how is this organization going to discriminate so her answer shouldn't have been i don't know what that question means her answer should have been this organization does not discriminate based on race period end of story um Wow. Yeah. I she mean, didn't say that. She said, I don't know what that question means. What's that that's the thing. Means? We've reached the point now where, and, and I agree with what you said earlier, that there is a silent majority and we shouldn't worry maybe too much about this stuff. Although the problem with the silent majority is the first part. It's that they're silent. But there's this, things are reaching a point now where the ones on the fringes, the the really scary uh, activists who, who are probably acting out some kind of psychopathology, they're no longer silent. They're saying the quiet part out loud now. The stuff that you that you, you don't even really want to believe that they're like, okay, that's an example. The other examples are that, uh, who was it? That clinical psychologist who gave a speech, I think at, at, at Yale oh, Child Center yes. said and she I'm wanted to like- white people. Yeah, I want to murder white people just because they're white. I just this genocidal fantasy that she has, and you know the response, as with the Richard Bilsko case, or as with this story, you're saying the response is usually silence or something very, very meek. It's not the strong response that is called for when people talk like that. 
it's just it's like oh I, I don't know what that question means next <laughs> yeah I mean I I see either silence um, I see sometimes a, a meek response I also sometimes see equivocation um, sometimes I see well there's a kernel of truth in what they're saying right I don't disagree however is what they're saying going to fix any problems is spending years and years and years and years and years and years and years discussing so-called systemic racism is that going to solve any problem we can go back and forth about whether or not the public school system is systemically racist that is not the reason why children aren't reading the reason why children aren't reading is because they're not taught phonics So these things, they don't solve problems. It's just opportunities for people to get their yayas out. Yeah, I do think that, I do think that that is largely the case that you're, that we're dealing with just a lot of unwell people. Uh, in many of these instances, who are who are able to use, who are able to use this stuff, these this virtue signaling to you know to make to make their unhealthy urges palatable, essentially to make to 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 pass themselves off as good people. I think that happens in many of these cases. I mean, I don't know that somebody like Ibram X. Kendi, nay Henry Rogers, is unwell. I think what's happening is that. He's getting rewarded for saying something that is not helpful. And so if that's the only way you can get attention, of course you're going to keep saying it. And what's really sad, particularly about um, how to be an anti-racist, I had a conversation with somebody who um, how to be an anti-racist is taught as part of um, the graduate program that this person works for. And this person read how to be an anti-racist and you know had equivocal responses to it you know the same kind of thing well you know i generally didn't like it but you know there were some you know there were some things that you know there's a kernel of truth there and you know the the personal stories are really good blah 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 i said well what did you think about the part where ibram x kendi said the only solution for past discrimination is present discrimination the only solution for present discrimination is past the only solution for present discrimination is future discrimination. What did you think about that? And the person looked at me and goes, it says that in the book. I said, yes, it says that on page 19, as a matter of fact. Oh, I didn't notice that. So there's some selective hearing and some, because it's so absurd. It's so like nobody would think in a million years that in America in 2020, anybody would be, proposing an idea like that because that's so absurd we don't have anything like sharia law in the united states and hopefully we never do but that's what that is so maybe i don't know seeing it in print maybe it's just so shocking that people don't want to acknowledge it Hmm. Or, or, or i don't know i mean i was mystified i was like how could you have not how could you have missed that? 
I think you're right about individuals such as Kendi. Not, I don't think that he's unwell. I think it's it is that sort of. Um, I read Stan from the beginning, which I thought was good. I I didn't agree with all of this, uh, the insertions of opinion, but as a work of history, I thought it was well written, and I and that is where he initially lays out his idea about uh, segregationists racist essentially people who want to separate the races assimilationists uh your martin luther kings and such and anti-racists but it's a much gentler uh theory or maybe you could say half formed maybe it wasn't fully formed yet and then in subsequent his subsequently uh how to be an anti-racist was to my mind well first of all it's like one-tenth the size so it's a kind of watered down, and I would say dumbed down, and that those arguments about those groups are brought forward and intensified. Um, and I wonder, listening to what you said, if if maybe it wasn't that that's what people seized on, as opposed to all of the dry history parts, which I didn't think were that dry. I thought they were fascinating. I love to read history. But maybe people were like, no, no, what's really exciting here is this thing about the anti-racism and and he leaned into that really hard because that's where the attention was, perhaps. I don't think it's people like him who are unwell. I think it's the the more vitriolic activists. That's that's what I meant. The ones who are screaming. I'll give you another example of, yeah. of people who are not unwell but did something unbelievably awful. I will mm. never for the rest of my life forget the day that I was segregated by race at work. I was asked, uh, usually every fall, every organization I work for is going to have some kind of fall orientation training type thing. And in the fall of 2019, I was, I was sent a Google form before the training happened. And one of the questions on the Google form was, would you like to participate in racial affinity groups as part of the training? And I had already kn- knew what racial affinity groups were. And you cannot segregate staff by race at work. And I'm not going to have that conversation with people. I'm just not. So I put down no. And I figured if at least one staff member said no, they wouldn't dare to actually do it. Because at least one person has said no. That's going to go to HR for sure. I get to the training and sure enough, they separated us by race at work during this training. Hmm. So then they send all the white people, all the white teaching artists to one room. They sit us all down. They have this other thing. Um, they have a list of quote unquote agreements on the wall. One of the agreements is confidentiality, <laughs> which I had a problem with that because nobody in that room can promise you confidentiality. If you want confidentiality, you need to have a, a written contract. So that's false right there. So we all got sat in this room and the people, the two people that were leading it, they said, you know, we've never done this before. We're not really sure about this, but we, you know, we're trying it out. And we're wondering if anybody has any questions. And the person leading it, she was head of their HR. I raised my hand. I said, yes, I was asked before this training on a Google form if I wanted to participate in racial affinity groups. And I said, no. But now I've been segregated by race at work. And so I'm just curious, like, how was that decision made to segregate us even though 
at least me, I said no. And, you know, she got very nervous and she was like, um, you know, Kevin, I, I actually don't know, but, but I'll find out and I'll get back to you. Now, she never did get back to me. Right. Um, you know, that was in the fall of 2019. And, you know, as we know, as the winter came on, pandemic took over and I, I kind of, you know, just let it go. Because I, you know, I, I wasn't sure I was going to live, to be quite honest. Um, so it, it wasn't top of mind for me, but a very, very scary day. And, you know, none of those people are bad people. None of those people are deranged people. None of those people are cruel people. But because this literature is out there and because it's being presented as the right thing to do, the idea that we should discriminate is a good thing. They're doing it. Yeah. Because they think it's being a good person because they think we live in a society that is a battle between the oppressors and the oppressed. And they're taking it out on the people who are closest to them. And they should stop doing that. I think John McWhorter is right. I think a lot of these people um, who are really committed to it, they have a fundamentalist belief. We're not going to change their mind, but you do have to work around these people. You know, if there's anything good that's come out of this whole thing, at least I found some like-minded people. Um, I did promise myself during the pandemic, I said, you know, if you survive this, you really have to pursue joy and fulfillment for yourself. Everything else, you've got to let it go because if you survive, I mean, I was in New York City at the beginning of the pandemic. It was really bad here. And I was on the subway every day going to different boroughs, you know, that month leading up to the shutdown. There was a couple of weeks where I really didn't know if I was carrying it, if it was going to just suddenly take me out. Um, and I did, you know, that Edith Horton project I was telling you about before, after several attempts to get some funding, we did get a small grant and we did put it up. And we were actually, we were able to do it during that period right after uh, right after the, the vaccines came out and before Omicron, there was kind of a lull where we could actually be in a room together and rehearse and put on a show. We did it in October, right before Omicron hit. And it was, every moment of rehearsal was joy and fulfillment. I loved mm. every moment of it. Mm. Uh, we put in an application. We got a grant to do another one. Last February, we did an adaptation of a short story by Ian Forrester called The Machine Stops. And um, I put in a third one, which you'll appreciate. I don't know if you know this author. Um, he's a Russian author named Yevgeny Zamyatan. Yes. Uh, Yevgeny Zamyatan wrote a novel called We. Yes, which of is course. A dystopian science fiction novel that um, George Orwell used the DNA of that novel to write in 1984. But uh, we recently found out this past spring that we got. Um, some funding to do an adaptation of Zamia Tan's We, which we're going to do in October 2024. Hmm. That will be interesting. I'm really excited about it. I, I don't I, I don't know how much you, you know about Zamia Tan, but um, one of his great things was being um, declaring himself a heretic. He was a he was a committed Bolshevik until the Bolshevik said all art must be useful to the movement. And he said, absolutely not. You cannot have true literature without heretics. You have to have somebody speaking out. 
um, we, uh, I'm not sure if you know the history of we, but we, um, it was banned. It was, it was the Soviet Union's first banned book. And it was first printed in an English translation in 1924. And ultimately, uh, Zamyatan had to get a letter to Stalin, asking Stalin if he could um, leave. And Stalin let him go. He let him out of the country. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, the, the, I mean, we're not, clearly we're not there, but the parallels are disturbing between, you know, <clears throat> the self-censorship, the, these struggle sessions, the, um, you know, one of the, of the, of the Maoist struggle sessions, I think a lot of people forget that those things often included two parts and one part was you have to sort of mouth the correct words of an apology for your sins, essentially. Everyone's seen some version of this, and people show up on TV, and they're like, oh, I'm very sorry, and blah, blah, blah. The second part was where your colleagues would have to come up one by one and essentially denounce you to your face. And that's the part that really... that. When the when everything happened with Richard Bilsko, um that's the thing that I remembered is was that well and the genocidal rhetoric, but also that that practice of making the community complicit in in the destruction of an innocent person, and willingly so. I mean, you can hear the joy in their voices when they're coming up and criticizing him because they think they've got the right answer and they're pleasing the teacher, Kiki Ojo Thompson. Mm. Yeah. They're, they're so, what's fascinating about that, the recording of that, because um, you can actually hear uh, Rupa Subramania published the entire recording of that session on her um, Twitter, formerly known as Twitter feed. I don't know, what is it called, X? Mm-hmm. Um, you can hear each one of them come up and they're, they're giving, they're giving their, you know, these are adults acting out. I'm the student and I'm a good learner. And I'm going to tell you Kiki Ojo Thompson, the answer that I think you're looking to hear. Yeah. And kind of depersonal, like not understanding that they are destroying this man right in front of his eyes. Yeah. Because they think they're doing the right thing. They think they are quote unquote, stamping out oppression. Yeah. Hmm. It's terrifying what people are capable of when they believe that they're acting in the name of good. It is. That cost somebody his life. And and how scary is it that that story is not published in the New York Times? That story is not published on NPR. I wouldn't expect that story to be talked about on MSNBC, but it's not there. Yeah. Why is that? It doesn't fit the narrative. But it's but it's news. Is it? Isn't there fundamental purpose to report the news? Did you see? Um, is it the Toronto Sun? I 
am not as familiar with the political leanings of Canadian newspapers as perhaps I should be. Uh, but there is a left-leaning Toronto-based newspaper. I think it's the Toronto Sun. Anyway, they, they put out a story debunking, quote-unquote debunking, the this tragedy. Uh, and I took a look at it because I was just... And the reason I took a look at it is because I was actually in conversation with an with an academic about a potential interview uh and during the conversation that uh Richard Bilstow's story came up and and this is this is an, an accomplished academic someone who I would have assumed before making any judgments would probably do some research the he said Oh, didn't you know that story was... I was expressing my... um, This is quite fresh after it had happened. I had just read... uh, I had just read Rupert Subramanya's piece in the free press. And I was just... I was just sort of like, wow, did you hear about this? This is is such a devastating, heartbreaking thing to to see happen to somebody. And he said, oh, didn't you know that that was debunked? And I said, what do you mean debunked? I, I listen, there's leaked audio. I listened to the audio of the classroom. I don't know how you can debunk leaked audio. I mean, <laughs> what do you mean it was debunked? And he's like, oh, you should, you should read the article. You'll see. And I asked, okay, did you listen to the audios? He had not listened to the audios. So he was going based on this one piece. So, and had not listened to the audios. I thought, okay, so is I w- this an article that's written by the person who actually she herself does diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops? Is that the one? I believe so. Yes. So if that's the one we're talking about, I, I can find it. She she in the in the lead, or at least in the second graph, if not in the lead, she makes it clear that Kike Ojo Thompson is the victim here, be- and that and that uh, Richard Bilstow was not the victim. Um, so what I found particularly disturbing about that article is that what that person who facilitates so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion workshops claims is that it is okay for participants in those workshops to experience what I believe she refers to as discomfort. Right. There is a very frightening fake psychodynamic therapy going on as part of these workshops where people have glommed some ideas from psychodynamic therapy and they think they are in a position to inflict this on you. They think that when a person, so uh, I believe this also comes from Robin D'Angelo, when somebody gets upset or what they call defensive, that's evidence of their complicity in so-called white supremacy. This is a horrific idea. This is purposefully upsetting people and then claiming that that upset is evidence that what you're doing is, is quote-unquote working, that you are exposing white supremacy culture by getting people upset and that you have any kind of right to do so. None no. of these diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants have a social work degree a license to practice mental health care and have gotten the participants in their DEI workshop to sign paperwork saying that they are their patients. Those are the three conditions that have to be met before anybody does any kind of psychiatric care on anyone. 
You have to have a social work degree. You have to have a license to practice social work. And the person has to elect to be your patient. Right. If those three conditions are not met, you have no business messing around with their emotional states or their mental health. But because of this term wellness and because of this term trauma, a lot of educators and a lot of arts practitioners think that they know something about how our thoughts are connected to our emotions. And that's a really dangerous dynamic. Yeah. You see that playing out. There's an educational philosophy called um, social emotion. Uh, it's not called transformative social emotional learning. Um, I was pressured to incorporate transformative social emotional learning into my teaching artist work last summer. I said emphatically no. I said I cannot diagnose or treat any of my students for any kind of mental health condition whatsoever because. I don't have a social work degree. I don't have a license to practice social work. And none of my students have signed up to be my patients. And they said, oh, but Kevin, you work in theater. You work in feelings and emotions all the time. I said, yes, the emotions of the character, not the emotion of the child. Hmm. I cannot intervene in any kind of emotional distress in a child. Yeah. That is for the school social worker. That is very dangerous. Not me. Yeah. And what they wanted me to do is to turn every theater workshop into opportunities to constantly ask the kids how they're feeling. Const- I said, feelings change like the weather, particularly with children who have very big feelings. And if you let them fixate on their feelings, that can cause major problems. How many times has it happened that I've had a kid in my workshop just start crying for no reason? We start doing an activity and the crying stops and they're just as happy as they were before. Hmm. We should not be trying to intervene on the mental health care of children through the arts. That is a recipe for disaster. And unfortunately, uh, you know, I hate to generalize, but Millennials and Gen Z have been taught a lot of stuff about affirming their feelings constantly. And this is causing a big problem. School should not be 100% about your feelings and identity grievance. You're supposed to be in school to learn about stuff that you don't already know about, like how to read, how to do mathematical equations, or how to pretend to be a duck. If you need, if you are really in distress and that child needs some kind of psychiatric intervention, then that's for the parent and the school social worker to decide together. Not me as a teaching artist who's going to meet this kid 10 times for 45 minutes. How would I know anything? What, why am I taking on the mantle of so-called wellness Why am I trying to, they have a philosophy called trauma-informed education. Why am I going to attempt to address any kind of trauma? And when I said no to that, guess what happened? They didn't hire me for anything. Wow. Which, you know, in the one sense, that hurts me financially but it's not going to bring me joy and fulfillment to be forced to do something that I think is actually harmful to kids. Of course. 
And it's going to be, you know, the thing about this whole uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and uh, causing people discomfort, if they keep this up, somebody's going to be slapped with a mental health care malpractice lawsuit because this is fake psychodynamic therapy. Yeah, yeah. It's really dangerous. I mean, you're basically saying, like, I'm going to do something that is going to hurt you. And if you squirm or struggle or resist, that just proves that you need the hurting. <laughs> this is like that. This is like what they used to say when they believed that people were witches and they would like hold them underwater and say, like, you know, if you if you survive, then it proves that you're a witch. If you drown, then I guess we knew that you were a human or something. It's just your struggle is the evidence of your guilt. No, maybe your struggle is evidence of your innocence. Maybe some people just don't like being accused falsely of some of these things. It's, it is, as you say, very sinister and insidious. This idea that resisting, it, it just means I need to push even harder. I need to turn the screws even tighter on you if you resist. Like, oh, it's such an inhumane... And, and to what end? Like, they are never able to articulate what is the ending. When does, at what point is your dream achieved? You know, they're, they're after this idea from Audre Lorde, you can never dismantle the, the, the master's house with the master's tool. Well, what's so wonderful about living in rubble? Is, is, that, is rubble the end goal? Do you know how many times, David, I heard burn it all down, even before George Floyd? It was a constant barrage of, Burn it all down. I'm never going back before. Burn it all down. I'm never going back to what it was before. But if you see in that tablet article, uh, those actors are pretty upset that they're not getting a paycheck, aren't they? That'd be going back to before, wouldn't it? Hmm. Getting a paycheck to perform? Well, you want that going back to before. Yeah. There is a... There is... There is a kind of unthinking... That the subhead in that article references, um, what is it, woke Bolshevism? And there is a kind of unthinking Bolshevism, almost almost because it sounds cool, they, this idea that, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's because it sounds cool, but I know for a fact that a lot of these people have not really thought through what Bolshevism looks like on the other end. And in fact, I've engaged with some of them, and they don't, they don't even really know... I've met people who self-identify as Leninists. In fact, I, I came face to face with like hundreds of them in, in, the, in my own little uh, Twitter scandal. And um, I, I was surprised how many of them don't actually know anything about Leninism, don't actually haven't read, you know, I suppose it's like so many other things in life where people pick up identifications and they don't really... Um, you know, study them deeply. This is true of many ideologies, political orientations, and and religious faiths. But um... I was just in a, a high school classroom last spring, and the teacher was getting ready to teach the Russian Revolution, and she had all these pictures up uh, around. Like you could go to the different pictures around the room and read a caption underneath, mm -hmm. and everything underneath was all talking about. Oh, the workers and the workers' rights and, you know, the workers fought for their rights. Now, that's not untrue. They were exceptionally poor. They were definitely being abused. 
nobody's disagreeing with that. It's what came after that is heinously bad, but I'd be interested to know how much of that is actually being taught and how much of it is being reframed as, oh, these poor workers and you know they were being oppressed and they fought for their liberation. And you know it's this collectivist, communist, we share everything. Yeah, exactly. Imagine doing that with slavery. Imagine, imagine finding a way to teach slavery without referencing the victims or what it was like for the people suffering. To to just kind of look at like, to just look at like, oh, these 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 plantation owners, they were very poor and they were suffering, or just. So, which, okay, yeah, you could say, yeah, yeah, okay, they were poor, and, and many of them were suffering, I suppose. But um, to look at it exclusively through that lens and, and not to then turn the page and talk at length about the suffering that came as a result is just, it just boggles the mind that anybody would A, do that, or B, have a job after they've done that. I mean, it's just, it's incredible to... But there's, there's this weird. Wrong with, there's nothing wrong with using lenses. I don't have any problem with using lenses. So critical race theory, for example, that's a lens, and it can help you identify problems that you wouldn't have seen if you didn't put the lens on. The problem I have is they're not. I agree with that. They're not telling you this is a subjective perspective. They're telling you this is the truth that's been denied you, mm-hmm. and we're revealing it to you. And you have to agree with it. Or you're... Or we'll call you yeah. a name. We'll get you fired. We'll ostracize you. We'll take everything away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In some contexts that works. But you know what? In the real world, what it does is it just sends people out to go find more like-minded individuals. So I think in some ways, you know, there is, as hard as it is, there, there, are, there are some gifts to this, you know, in terms of finding new people, meeting new people that maybe you would never have been interested in before, but you find out you actually have things in common. Mm-hmm. I think also to some degree when they, I mean, a lot of people find it easier to conform but for those who don't they are invariably ostracized or pushed out in some way and there's a kind of an awakening process that happens when you go through that where even for myself I can say you know I I would like to think that I'm I'd like to think of myself as thoughtful and reflective but there's a lot that I didn't see until after uh until after I got I got fired and I sort of took a different, I took a different angle on a lot of this stuff. And before then I thought about this stuff. Uh, I did think about it and, and yet still I, I didn't see it. I just, I hope that it's not the case that you have to literally go through it yourself in order to understand. But I feel like that might be true because I had to anyway. And, um, but not, but you know, Think about how few people will have such an experience. So that means the vast majority of people are, are never really going to get it. 
they're never really going to understand. Um, and they're, they're very easily going to continue to believe that this stuff is all good. And uh, I don't see a problem here. And I mean, I was talking to someone just the other day, and I thought we were having a rather civil discussion. We were going back and forth. We didn't agree, uh, but it was, um, but we were having a respectful exchange of ideas. Um, I found it very refreshing to be able. This was someone who was on the left-ish, but I didn't know exactly where. And then I made a reference to some events uh, politically, and I used the word woke. And he responds with an insult, ends the conversation, and blocks me <laughs> on social media because I because the word woke was just so um, so offensive to him, and that to me, I just I just thought, wow, I really thought that there was some kind of like maybe not common ground, but at least the idea of people being able to disagree in a civil manner is something that I I think is very valuable and I thought we were we were having a moment like that and then I and then I guess I kicked a tripwire <laughs> I mean I always thought that agree to disagree was the way to go but I got into this horrible situation at another job where I was I was being on board I was being onboarded again um, because every year where I worked for this company, they would offboard me during the summer, and then they'd ask me to come back and do a residency in the fall, and then they'd have to onboard me all over again. And so this was fall of 2019, and I was being onboarded, and an email was sent about me to the help desk to reinstate my um, organizational email, and I was referred to in the email as they, Another thing that happened in the fall of 2019 in New York State is we had like these extreme sexual harassment trainings. And one of the things in the sexual harassment trainings was like, if you think you've been sexually harassed, then you were. And there was a lot in there about pronouns, about, you know, not using the right pronouns and this, that, and the other thing. And so this email has been sent, and it said something like, Kevin Ray would like their email reinstated. They are working for us again. They would like, and I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm a nearly 50-year-old gay man. You are not going to refer to me as they. Absolutely, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It took me, like, it took me 20-some years of my life just to get comfortable with the fact that I am a gay man. You don't get to decide to take my identity away. So I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to nip this in the bud. So I just sent an email and, you know, as part of these sexual harassment trainings, what they said, if you get sexually harassed, tell the person to stop and notify your supervisor. Right. And that should be the end of it. So I emailed this person back. I put my, I put both my supervisors on the email. And all I said was, please do not refer to me as they, he, him is fine. Thanks. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear anything about it for like a month because there was like a month in between the time we were actually going to do a planning meeting and other things going on. So a month later, I get this email that said, hey, Kevin, we're ready to do the planning meeting for this upcoming residency. Uh, we want to talk about the planning. Also, we want to talk about interpersonal, uh, interpersonal communication. And I'm thinking 
inter, inter-office communication or something like that. Right. And I'm thinking, oh no, this has to do with the fact that I have an office email and I'm using my personal email. Like, oh, they probably probably want me to use the office email. Nope. I get there, and what is it about? Well, we noticed that you, you know, had a had a very strong reaction to this um, email where you were referred to as they, and you know, the email landed as very harsh. But the email had a very harsh tone, and my first thought, okay, that can't be because emails have no tone; they're just words. There's no tone. They're like, what is this about? And I said, well, I don't want to re- be referred to as they. And they said, well, what's the problem with that? We're using they as a gender neutral term. I said, I don't care what you want to do. I don't want to be referred to as they. They said, well, we're using they as a gender neutral term because we're trying to combat um, uh, harmful systems of the patriarchy in the office. I said, I do not care. I said, you don't decide what my pronouns are. I do. That is the exact opposite of what the uh, trans activist movement is trying to say. It's trying to say, you respect the identity that I say that I have. Jeez. You're doing the yeah. exact opposite right now. Yeah. And, I, and then they persisted, David. And I said, all right, should we get human resources in here? And then they went, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. So I did the residency. The residency ended, uh, this was like January, 2020. It was like right before the pandemic, maybe it was February, 2020. So I go in for a closeout meeting, like just to sort of reflect on how the residency went. It was building puppets with kindergartners. Um, And I said, you know what, you two, I have to be really honest with you. I was really nervous to come into this um, reflection meeting with you today because in the fall, you sent me an email saying we were going to have a planning meeting and we were going to talk about inter-office communication. But that's not what the meeting was about. The meeting was about planning and you wanted to talk to me about pronouns. And you weren't transparent about that. You could have said to me in the email, we want to talk to you about pronouns. But you didn't. You used the term inter-office communication. Why did you do that? And they said, oh, we don't know. We didn't really think about it. But, you know, while we're talking about that, you know, you weren't misgendered. That was that email was a it was a template email and it just got sent out. I said, listen, we are going to have to agree to disagree on this issue. At that point, she slammed her hand down on the desk and she said, no. What? I thought, yes. I thought this is the most babyish response I have ever experienced at work i mean things obviously got worse during the <laughs> oh pandemic. my gosh the pandemic. yeah yeah this is my supervisor and you know my work you know the way i work it's gig to gig so i'm risking never getting hired in true to form they never hired me after that because i refused to let them refer to me as they uh, yeah that's just ridiculous that's so I have a I had a similar experience of being told I guess not exactly being told my identity well in a sense so that is unbelievable that you and that reaction is just shocking and the fact that they purposefully did it to combat 
harmful systems of patriarchal oppression. In the right. Place. Yeah. I was like, wait a minute. This office is like 90% female. Like, you know, they want to constantly talk about disparities. You look at the arts and you look at theater, it is overwhelmingly female. So why isn't your first priority to make sure that your, your staff is 50-50 men to women? How, why, why do you need to combat harmful patriarchal systems in an office that is mainly women, like overwhelmingly women? Hmm. <laughs> That's why none of this makes any sense. No. What this is about is being virtue signaling, being morally righteous, lecturing people, telling them you know what more than they do, that everybody has to be re-educated. It's ridiculous. I I had this uh, at at work. We had this. I wouldn't call it. I guess it's diversity training. I'm not sure. Well, it was someone who came to talk to us about um, basically to educate us on gender issues and all kinds of things such as, you know, how do you refer to different types of people with respect uh, as a journalist? How do you do this? How blah, blah, blah. We were, and the, the, the class, I, it was... Uh, it's mostly very basic. I mean, th there's nothing said in the class that I hadn't heard before. So if maybe it was new for some people and so it was good for them to learn something, but I found it uh, somewhat uh, not a very good use of my time. So after the class was over, I sent um, a message to the instructor who's somewhat well-known, has, has their own like uh, podcast and such. And, and I was like, you know, I'm really interested to hear, I've listened to some of your podcast episodes. I found it interesting. I'm interested to hear like, um, you know, uh, you made this comment in class about, um, non-binary because I, I don't sort of strictly adhere to this binary standard. I mean, I'll throw on a pink shirt or I'll cry in a movie, but surely this doesn't, this doesn't say anything uh, this doesn't change how I need to think about my own identity, right? I mean, um, and the response I got was, right, so, so if you don't strictly hear, adhere to this very clear black and white binary, then you're non-binary, which I think is, okay, I mean, I, mm, okay, I can kind of get with that uh, in the sense that I reject the I, I reject the need to think in such binary terms. I, I have no use for it. So sure. Uh, okay, fine. But here's the part that I was... <laughs> the, that far, I'm okay. I'm like, okay, fine. Yes, I, I reject the binary. Um, and then the response was, right. Uh, so you're trans. And I said, whoa, wait. I was like, whoa, wait? What do you, what do you mean there? And they're like, well, trans means... Uh, not identifying with your gender, identifying with like a non-gender or not embracing the binary. And I was like, well, wait, no, trans would mean, so like I'm a guy, trans would mean that I identify as, as a woman. Trans literally means across, right? To identify as the one that is on the other side, male to female, female to male. And the response was, no, no, it just means not identifying with... Um, your own gender, and so you're trans. But if you think that there's this distinction here that you're trying to draw, 
then that just means that you're a self-hating trans person. <laughs> this is what I was told. And I just, I was like, I was like, okay, so you get to tell me that I'm not only that I'm trans, but if I don't agree about who I am, I'm a self-hating trans person. Okay. That, that's very interesting. And you teach classes on this stuff and people look to you for insight on this subject matter. You sound, I mean, I, 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 I think this is, it's, this is just so sad where we, I mean, this is, this is the place, listen, anybody can identify as anything that they want. I really don't care. I, I'm happy that you know, whatever you know about yourself, that's totally fine. But this impulse to then tell other people what they have to be or what they can't be or what they can't be, that's ridiculous. That's totally ridiculous. Yeah. And I just don't understand why you, you were talking before about the event that sort of changed your thinking on things. The thing that happened to me that made me kind of wake up and go, wait a minute, something's wrong here, is when Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion for the Bostock decision because now uh, we were told I, I think it's horrible what what they did to Merrick Garland I think that's a terrible terrible thing they should not have done that to him they should have confirmed him but when Neil Gorsuch was appointed to the Supreme Court I can't tell you how many times the message that I was getting from the media was basically this guy is a demon that is just going to do horrible, horrible conservative things on the Supreme Court. And now here we have a conservative who gave gay men, lesbian women, bisexual people, transgender people, the last right that we did not have. We did not have that right. And suddenly now we have all the rights that everybody else has. Why isn't anybody saying this is a wonderful thing and it's come from a side of the aisle that has traditionally not supported us remember in 1992 when pat buchanan came out at the republican national convention and said awful things about gay men and lesbian women and now look we have republicans who are actually supporting us isn't this wonderful isn't this fantastic isn't this amazing no hmm. they don't say that at all they turn a corner down to this gender identity thing. But there are serious issues that gay men, lesbian women, bisexual people have that need to be addressed that aren't getting addressed. Mm, yeah. And, and I'm wondering, like, who is going to stand up and say, hey, we need to start having a conversation about the fact that this has gone way too far. And this is really starting to backfire badly. You think? I don't know. Sometimes I... I mean, yes, it is. But I still think that it's going to get worse before it gets better. The The pendulum has not think, reached the... You know, it's not going to swing back the other way quite yet, I feel. No, no. Um, I mean, I think the, the negative effects are that there are, there are same-sex couples that have children that are in schools. And nobody can acknowledge that Billy has two dads. In it, like if we're getting into situations like that, I think that's really bad. The problem is that there is also a real issue on the other side, which is that they are putting books in schools that are really inappropriate for kids. 
that they are they have pornographic cartoons in them. Hmm. That is not what gay and lesbian people are about. Listen, consenting adults can do whatever they want to do as long as they both agree to do it. That's what they want to do. That's their business. But we don't have to take this like radical uh, queer agenda and put it in school libraries and have uh, elementary school teachers teaching kids picture book with grandpa dressed in uh, S&M leather. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and that is massive. That should never be in an elementary classroom. So that's how this is, you know, massively backfired. We had a lot of goodwill built up. Yeah. There are, listen, you have to also accept that there are going to be people on the planet Earth who are never going to accept homosexuality. They just aren't. Too bad, so sad for them. We're going to have to work around those people. They're going to exist. You can't get rid of them. But by and large, we had built up a lot of goodwill. And that goodwill is getting erased because we're platforming the most extreme perspectives on queer issues. Yeah. And fight, and you have activists fighting for these books that, in my opinion, that should not be in even a high school library. If you want to have that in the regular library, listen, it's the regular library. If you want to have Drag Queen Story Hour in the regular library, they have every right to have Drag Queen Story Hour. You don't have to take your kids there. But they can also have uh, conservative tea time at the library, too. They have that right as well. But not in school. Like, we don't need these extreme books in school. Yeah, that kind of stuff really is backfiring. And just, just I mean, that's just... Uh, I, sometimes I almost wonder if it's not just some kind of elaborate psyop by the Republicans because some of this stuff is such perfect fuel for the right. It plays it, it plays into their hand so well. Uh, I just I just can't believe that they don't see it. Or you know, if somebody were to come out come out and say that some of this some of the activism that I see that is so aggressive and so offensive that it's only going to galvanize the other side. Or get or get Donald Trump elected a second time. Um, if somebody came, if it came out in, in two years that some of this stuff was like funded by some far right conservative group, I, I wouldn't even be surprised. It's just it's so extreme. The you know um, uh, just last night I was watching this video. You know it was these uh, militant trans activists calling for the talking about raping and murdering uh, women. Um, women who don't, TERFs essentially. Women who don't have the correct, uh, I don't even know if they're TERFs. I think they just might not be, uh, they might not embrace the affirming model. They might embrace like the Dutch model. But that's not enough. I mean, Jesus. Just when, you know, when the when the discourse gets to the point where supposedly left-wing activists are talking about raping women as punishment for not thinking the right thoughts uh, I don't even know what to say about that it's just... I mean it is true like, it was my own I mean listen everybody in elementary school figured out I was gay before I did and I certainly had a lot of bullying about it mm. way before I even realized what was going on so something does have to happen and I don't know today you know with all with all the visibility, how bad it is right. today. 
Um, there is something that needs to be done in terms of how do we normalize it. And like, you know, it's just, sometimes people are just like that. We don't know why. Yeah. Some people are gay. Some people are lesbian. We don't know why. It's okay. It's not a big deal. Um, something should happen in schools to address that issue just because so kids don't bully each other horribly. Are there... Um, and pretend, pretending yeah. it doesn't exist, that's not going to help. Are there specific initiatives or changes that you'd like to see in, in education or the arts on these issues? Well, you know what's interesting, though, David? I'll tell you, like, I've been a teaching artist since 2002. I've worked with kids that are in kindergarten all the way to 12th grade. I've worked with college students. I've worked with older adults. It has never happened that entire time that anybody has ever asked me about myself because generally people don't care. Generally, kids don't care. Um, I don't know on the ground, like, you know, what kind of bullying there actually is going on. Kids get bullied for all kinds of things. And we certainly have taken the, um, the anti-bullying thing way, way, way too far into the realm of, you know, policing speech that right. isn't helpful either. Um, so I really don't know, but I do know that we're not talking about it because, you know, all the conversations are about these extreme examples. Hmm. That is really the thing that drew me to uh, Zanya Tan's novel, is that is a novel about extremism. They live in a, at a horrible totalitarian regime the regime that wants to topple it is a chaos machine and neither one of those things are great. That's a fair description. I I don't know what it's going to take for the the majority of the people who are in the middle. Uh, It's some combination of the media environment is just so messed up because of social media and because of YouTube and you know, everybody go into their own silos. Well, the thing is, I, 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 like I was saying before, you know, unless people actually go through this, and very, very few ever will, that, or unless they're uh, extremely online, as they say, then I think the majority of the, the silent majority is silent because they are largely not as aware of some of these issues. You know, I think most people aren't aware of these these scandals Richard Biltz, Biltstow story or some of the other ones that we talked about like the the, uh, the psychologist who talked about killing white people at Yale or you know most people don't hear these things and they don't realize how bad it's getting or how widespread it is until it affects them personally or unless they're online, if they're on, if they're on social media or something, then then they're more likely to see this kind of stuff. But I just I, I worry that people well, just listen, kind of don't see it coming. To draw an analogy to what happened with um, rights for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people, part of the reason we got those rights was because of the AIDS crisis and because it forced people to come out of the closet, so that everybody suddenly saw, oh wait a minute. I have a gay son, I have a gay nephew, I have a gay coworker, I have a gay friend. 
Mm-hmm. So the, the longer this goes on, people are going to see this ideology has severely impacted my son or daughter. This has severely impacted my friend. This has severely impacted my spouse. This has severely impacted somebody that I know. What I've said to people who have come to me and you know have expressed concern but are not willing to do anything I said, look, it's a matter of time. It's going to come for you one day or someone you know one day. Right. So, and it's only, and Barry Weiss has said this, it's only going to get harder to speak up. And if you know, it's also on us, the people who have come out and said something, to keep speaking out and to keep saying, you can have a life after speaking out. You, things will change, but you will find other people not the end of the world i you know the saddest part is that i traveled in similar circles to richard bilkstow and it just it makes me so sad that i was never able to talk to him mm. um even you know if it's you know sometimes i get together with other people who have spoken out and we just talk about you know what it's like you know what happened and what it's like now um yeah you know we're If we're lucky, we'll wake up tomorrow and something else is going to happen. Are you generally optimistic? Um, depends on the day. <laughs> um, I, I have to keep telling myself that, um, one, I keep saying, um, uh, Ryan Holiday, who does, um, he talks about stoicism on his podcast and he's written several books on stoicism. Um, one of his books is called the obstacle is the way. So things that seem like they are obstacles can turn out to actually be gifts that happened. Um, I told you, I, I did this production of ghost stories by Edith Horton and we planned to go back to the same venue the next year. Um, we found out after we got some grant funding that the space, the, the price of the space like tripled because the pandemic was over and they needed to make some money back and we couldn't go there. And, it, that, and at first it seemed devastating. Then we ended up finding another venue to the performance that cost less and was actually better suited for the project that we wanted to do. So I have direct evidence that the obstacle is the way. I was telling you that story earlier about mm. the artistic director who said, I don't hire any directors whose work I haven't seen or any directors whose work you know, has come to my theater to see shows that I made here. That seemed like a tragedy when it happened. It was a gift because it prompted me to call up my friends from graduate school and say, hey, do you want to make a play together? Nobody would ever hire me to adapt Ghost Stories by Edith Horton because um, she's not in vogue right now. Um, and now I'm on my third adaptation of literature that's in the public domain. And there's a ton of literature in the public domain that's really interesting. And we're using as source material to create a performance about. I wouldn't have done that if that obstacle wasn't in my way. And would I really have been happy working for that artistic director? Maybe not. Maybe I'm happier doing this. There's no money in it. And, you know, just like in that tablet article um, where she says artists used to artists used to live to work and now they want to work to live. I happen to be of the uh, 
perspective that I'm for right now, I'm willing to live to work. I wish I could make my living just directing. That's not happening right now. Um, but I do get the opportunity to go in and work with children and teenagers, which is really fun. And that's a great way to make money right now. I don't know how long I can sustain this, but I got to 50. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's but some days I get some days I get pretty dark. It depends on what, if it, uh, you know, too much listening to podcasts about these issues and the fact that the you know it's it's slow to change. Mm, yeah, we just need we just need a couple a couple more Kevin Ray's maybe maybe a couple hundred thousand more <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe a million um well and more people like you writing articles and you know getting the word out to as many people who are willing to listen i suspect probably well who knows but i think people will just get so sick of this that they'll eventually they'll move on i, I forget what the uh, who the author was there was a woman who wrote an article for the atlantic about um vaccines and masking and she the the scandal was she was saying can we just like um can we just chalk it up to like that happened and can't we all just move on because i i don't think that we're going to get um massive apologies from these people i don't think there's going to be a day where they say yeah actually what we did was wrong we shouldn't have done that i think what will happen yeah is that this period will pass We'll be on to some other thing. Hopefully, that thing is not a disastrous election cycle in twenty twenty four. Yeah. Hopefully, it's something else that's not heinous, um, and this period will have passed without us even realizing that it passed, and then we'll go, "Oh my gosh, remember that? It was it was awful." Yeah, I think I think that's maybe that's a hopeful note to end on the the idea that as bad as it gets like any other political movement if we can call it that uh that the great kryptonite of these movements is time and given enough time the air just kind of seeps out of it i mean you, you got to strike while the iron's hot and get your demands met otherwise after a couple of years people kind of just move on to the next thing and maybe that will happen with all of this i don't know we're not there yet. I mean, maybe... and it hasn't worked. I mean, even Robin D'Angelo was caught on video saying that it didn't work. There was that video where uh, the other woman who was on it, she said something like, we thought this was a movement, but really it was just a moment. <laughs> I didn't hear so, that. I haven't heard that. Oh, yeah. They, they, she said, I thought this was going to be a movement, but really it was just a moment. Well, it's so a very long moment, but yeah. they are conceding that this has not worked. Yeah. If it had worked... People would be, nobody's on board with defund the police. That has been an epic disaster. Yes, true. And I think, you know, it, it is coming out that, you know, we are seeing more and more. I don't know if you heard um, Corinna Cohn, who now goes by Corey, the interview that um, was done with Wesley Yang. That I think, you know, it, it, the tide is going to change on, on some of these issues related to. Um, gender dysphoria and young people and how this has unfolded that this was maybe a bit too, even the New York times has reported a little bit that maybe there's a problem here. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Indeed. Well, okay, maybe just in time. We'll see. 